Beyond the Mic with Sean Dillon. We're joined on the BeyondTheMic.com star line by a comedian and actor. You can see him Thursday nights in Tommy on CBS. Vladimir Camano, laughing Vlad, welcome brother. Thank you, my man. A pleasure, a pleasure to, uh, to talk to you. I appreciate it. Let's go beyond the mic. You have a degree in psychology from Wesleyan University. How has being observant around the Bronx helped develop your stand-up? So coming from the Bronx, it's a hotbed of different voices and narratives. Being from New York and the subway system, it was just, it's almost like being on a radio station and you're being bombarded with a million different types of records. Your brain is just a, a pot, it's a stew of different seasonings, you know, inspirations. So that's kind of um, what's gone into my stand-up and also my writing and my acting. I pull from those experiences and, and they give me confidence. You know, my father is a, is a superintendent in the Bronx for a 68-unit building. And I saw him firsthand working, plumbing, piping, painting. So when you see somebody going through that day in and day out, it gives you the confidence to pursue an industry where you have to deal with a lot of rejection. The Bronx in itself, the Yankees, the concrete streets, the small and tight fire hydrants, it's built to deal with rejection, to keep pressing on. As a person born near Queens, I totally understand. Hey, what's up, buddy? You're a Mets fan? <laughs> Growing up, I was a Mets fan. <laughs> Oh, man. <laughs> Don't hold that against me. Some people do. It's all good, my man. Nothing but love. I'm funny. My father's in the Bronx. He roots for any team playing, playing against the Yankees. Because many moons ago, you know, when they had Don Mattingly, when they had Reggie Jackson, they were a scrappy team. And then they became, you know, the Derek Jeter and, and the Alex Rodriguez and the Aaron Judge, which is all fine and good. But it, it, the team has a lot more glitter now. It has a lot more, you know, uh, shine. <laughs> Who was your favorite baseball player growing up? It has to be Kirby Puckett. Kirby Puckett was a, you know, if you remember, he was a chubby guy, but he played like he had the body of a, of a gymnast. He was agile. He was a contradiction in, in many ways. I was a chubby kid growing up. And his name, Kirby, you know, Kirby, if you remember, was, was a Nintendo character. It was a little fluff ball. And Kirby, you know, the name matched. It was, it was a, little, a little pink ball. Exactly. And Kirby fought that stereotype. He was like, listen, man, I know it portly. You know, but I'm going to play like I'm otherwise. You were able to cover the World Baseball Classic and the Dominican Republic team in 2017. Yes, I did. How important is baseball to you? And if you had the opportunity, would you do it again in 2021? Uh, yeah, I would definitely do it. You know, go down there again and uh, love talk to the fans and for many developing countries. You know, but I would say this. For, for many people coming out of, you know, tough economic circumstances, you look at boxing, for example. Boxing is is littered with Roberto Duran and, and even Floyd Mayweather, guys that came out of just tough economic strains. You see the same about basketball. That's what baseball is for the Dominican Republic. It's a lifeline for, for a lot of people. It's an economic opportunity. And the climate in our country lends itself to that. You know, it's a tropical country, so we have tons of, of land. It's a very simple sport, a glove, a bat, and a baseball. Unlike basketball, basketball is a little harder. You need a, you need a hoop. You need a, a certain height. You need, you need the lines on the ground. When I went to go visit my family, when I would go, sometimes we would take a broomstick and we would take the top of a water bottle and we would use that to play baseball. Good old stickball. Good old stickball, exactly, which, which you can find in the Bronx, you know, back in the day. The geography and the simplicity of the sport and just makes it very easy for us to play it. Now, one of your favorite topics is your family. When your parents first saw you doing stand-up, 
were they mad, angry, or did Dad go like, I don't do that? The first thing that um that they noticed was so growing growing up, even now, you know, I'm an introvert. I do enjoy you know the life of the mind. I like reflecting. I like going on walks. So my parents, they were in shock when they first saw me doing stand up. They were like, you know, how, when? And I think for me, you know, my dad was a huge Ronnie Dangerfield fan. And my older brother was an Eddie Murphy fan. And my mother used to love watching sketches on Spanish television. And because I struggled a bit socially, I kind of picked up on the fact that, hey, these people like to laugh. Maybe that's my entry point to communicate with them, to build a relationship with them. So I just absorbed, you know, I would go out, I'd buy the Steve Martin albums, I'd buy the Richard Pryor albums. I would sneak in and I would watch like Ronnie Dangerfield movies, like when my dad was in earshot as a way to get him to come and watch the movies with me. So the first thing was shock. The second thing they experienced was my recollection of things. My father was shocked. You know, I, I do a joke about how my father used to be obsessed with black garbage bags. You know, that was his Swiss Army knife. If, if you needed a raincoat, if you needed a curtain, black garbage bag, you know. Tinted windows. <laughs> it's in the windows, exactly, which is which I would love for you to share with your listeners. I did a set on the Howie Mandel Gala for the Just for Last Festival, and I did that joke on there. My father was shocked that I would just bring all those stories back. He was like, my God, you know. Uh, you remember that. They'd come to see me again and again, and it'd be different stories. It'd be conversations my father had with the tenants, or it'd be something my mother did, or something my brother did. And they were just shocked at all those years that I was an introvert and I was quiet. That's all it was. You were listening. I was quietly collecting, I was collecting stories. I was collecting narratives. You know, fast forward in 2015, I ended up selling a pilot to NBC that I wrote and shot. It was just my knack for storytelling. It was just all those years that's kind of keeping to myself and just watching my father work and my brother, the salsa dancer, watch him dance. My mother was a house mom, so I'd watch her cook. And my mother was always on the phone. She was always on the phone, you know? And I, the whole time she's on the phone, she would talk about, you know, who's doing what, who's who's cheating on who, who owes who money. And the whole time I'm listening, I'm like, oh, these are, so this is how people operate. Okay, so she wants that, so she's going to do this to get that. You know, obviously, this is all in hindsight. And in talking to you, I'm always, I'm always amazed at kind of the, the points of learning that accumulate over time. Were you treated any differently when people found out that you were the Supers kid? In some ways, you do get certain privileges. For example, if a police officer pulls you over, all I had to say was, hey, my father, Super. Oh, they would go, oh, your father's the Super of that building? They'd know him by name, and it was an easy out. You know, it was almost like a get-out-of-jail card. If I had to get something at the bodega, and I happened to be short on money, I would go, hey, my dad's the Super. Oh, you know, forget about it. Here, take the soda, take the eggs. Don't worry about it. So my father was kind of like the mayor, you know, and it was funny because on Sundays, when my father's, you know, the, those are my dad's day off. And on Sunday, he would dress up in a suit and he'd go around the neighborhood and say hi to people. And, and you know, just, and they would say, hey, Super, can you fix my apartment? And he would go, hey, it's Sunday. I got my suit on. You got to make an appointment, you know? <laughs> um, total character, man. Total character. He put on a three-piece suit and he parade the neighborhood. On the flip side, though, my dad is in charge. He was of uh, a 68-unit building. And uh, it's hard to maintain that many tenants and keep them all happy. So sometimes I had to, you know, sneak around the tenants because if they saw me, they would kind of use me to get to my dad. Hey, hey, man, you know, I got a leak for two days now. Can you talk to your father? Meanwhile, in some ways, I was what you would call the communications director for the building. <laughs> um, you know, in the same way that, you know, uh, a government has a press secretary, I was a press secretary for my father. Because I knew what he was dealing with, you know, if he had, if he had a paint job in, in apartment 4K. If he had a busted block in apartment 2J, but now I got 3F, ha you know, haggling me about fixing his sink. 
So that, you know, that now that I talk to you, maybe that trained me because I had to find diplomatic ways and to kind of massage, you know, angry tenants. It's funny that that, that just kind of came up to me. Yeah, maybe, maybe that's one of my skill sets. I had to, had to deal with irate apartment dwellers to get them to not, you know, come, come hunting after my dad. As we all deal with coronavirus, you've made it your mission online to get the word out about people working on vaccines. You didn't have to, but you did. Why? So, you know, I was a chemistry major in college for the first three years. I was a nerd in high school. I was also a huge chemistry. In fact, my chemistry teacher in high school, his name was Joshua Pepe, he guided me towards Wesleyan, and he actually wrote me a glowing recommendation. He was my chemistry teacher, and then I went to college, and I started off as a chemistry major, but then I switched course because I, I, you know, I thought psychology was a better fit. So I've always had an affinity for science. You know, I love Neil deGrasse Tyson. I love watching the show Cosmos. When this whole pandemic thing came out, I was like, who can I take an interest in? There's a scientist that I saw on the documentary Pandemic on Netflix. His name is Jake Glanville. And he's working on an antibody vaccine that shows amazing promise. And he's actually a Gates recipient. And I'm happy you asked me that because I'd love for you to plug him as well if, if you, you know, if you would be so kind. Definitely. You know, because the vaccine is basically 18 months out. So that's what the, the experts are saying. And what Jacob is working on, he's working on an antibody treatment that's an offshoot from the previous uh, SARS virus. He's using his research, and he came up with an antibody for the COVID-19 virus. But because he's a good scientist, he needs to get the proper testing and make it legitimate. So he's looking for avenues to do that. And he's been on all kinds of interviews from my Instagram page. You can get access to his Instagram, his Twitter. And he's looking for ways to ramp up his treatment and testing. And his antibody treatment, if all goes well, he says he can have it you know, as early as September. It's an antibody treatment, so... You know, according to, again, I, I'm not speaking for him. I'm, I'm a fan of his. It's not like we're friends, but I do support his research and his, and you know, the protocol that he's pursuing. Your work with Edie Falco and Tommy feels like a mother-son relationship. You give her sass. She sends you to your room. How's it to work with her? You know, I'm a stand-up comic. I have a, a few things in my resume. I, I've sold a script. I've done a few bit parts. But, you know, Edie is, you know, she's a, she is a legend. And she is just so kind. She's a team player, and she has an amazing sense of humor. Offset, it just feels like you're talking to uh, a friend. That's what it feels, you know. The days where we're sitting in the car and we're waiting for the cameras to set up, and we're just talking, and we laugh, and we joke. One of the things we both love is we love fun- we love watching funny animal videos. Edie is a huge, she's a huge animal support. She loves animal rights. So what we do is we share funny videos about dogs doing crazy things or stuff like that, and we just get a huge kick out of that, man. Like. You know, we'll be in the car and she'll be like, hey, did you see, did you see this pit bull? He sits on the couch like a like like an actual person. <laughs> Three hours later, you're like, hey, are we ready to shoot? Exactly, exactly, exactly. But, you know, she's so ordinary that she becomes extraordinary. That's the best way I can describe her. And uh, it's, I'm, I'm grateful every day to work with her. And I just, you know, I'm, fingers crossed that we get picked up for a second season and I'm able to continue that journey journey with her you believe in giving back you've worked with the cedar sinai psychological trauma center with children how's that changed your life that was a fundraiser that i did and it was kind of a uh, serendipitous if you backtrack in my life when i was in high school i was in a program i was in an after school enrichment program called uh, liberty partnerships program and that program was instrumental in getting me to go to college so when i graduated from college i ended up working at a version of that program for about seven years and I was a counselor, I was an after-school coordinator, and I was helping kids get into higher education. I'm a product of a lot of help. When that opportunity came around with Cedar sinai uh, it was a fundraising opportunity, and they were looking for a host 
to raise some money for uh, you know an, initiatives they do to help young people in, in the Los Angeles area. And I was like, hey, let's do it. And hopefully we can do it again. Um, it was a great opportunity. I love it when my comedy overlaps with helping out young people. If you could give a percentage, how much of your character on Tommy, Abner Diaz, is you, and how much of you is in Abner Diaz? So I would say this. I would, I would break it up into three segments. Abner Diaz loves suits. You know, I, I like a good fleece. I like gym pants and some hiking shoes. Abner drives. He likes to drive. I'm from New York City, man. I like the, the subway, and I like to walk. The one thing he and I share is our sense of humor. And that's the one thing that he and I definitely, you know, when, when I read the script and I, I look at the jokes they do for him, I'm like, hey, that's something I find funny. But it's ironic, man. It's really ironic that I end up landing a role where I wear beautiful suits and I drive all the time because I, in those two in those two aspects, I'm the complete opposite. Now, before the pandemic started, you were on the road and there's always great stories from on the road. What's your funniest story from being a comedian on the road? So I would say maybe two years into comedy. I end up booking a gig at a bar and grill in Westchester, and it's a paid gig. When you start comedy, the idea of getting paid to tell jokes is a complete, like, it, it blows your mind. It could be as little as five bucks. It could be as, you know, 20 bucks, but you're just, like, amazed. So I get this gig in Westchester. I think it was, like, 50 or 100 bucks. And I get there to the bar and grill, and I'm so excited about the gig that I completely forget that it's the same night as the World Series. The Yankees are in the World Series. The venue has the audacity to play the game while I'm on stage. Oh, gosh, no! No one's paying attention! And it must have been about maybe like... So the the, the, the bar was split into two rooms. They had the main room, with, which was the restaurant, and the bar. And then they had a side room where they had like a pool table, some chairs, and they had like a small side bar, and they had the TV, and they had a stage. So there were, must have been about maybe... I don't know, six and a half people there. Um, and I say six and a half because you know, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that a ghost <laughs> hopefully, you know, went in there to help us out. And I, and I'm, I'm doing my set, man. And I'm just taking a hot one. It is complete silence. The Yankee game is on and I'm, you know, I'm trying to figure these jokes out. And then midway through my set, this woman who's sitting with her friend and she has one of those big wide martini glasses. I, you know, I'm trying to figure out what you call them. She goes, Hey, I saw Chris Rock when he sucked too. It, in a funny way, I, in a funny way, I took it as a compliment. I saw the humor in it. Okay, I had an interview once with Michelle Rubini, band leader for Sonny and Cher, part of the famous Hollywood Wrecking Crew. Forty-five minutes in of stories about Sinatra, Sonny and Cher. Finish it up. There's a problem with the mic, and nothing from his side recorded. Oh man. He's telling stories that need to be recorded for posterity. I'm going to swallow my pride, call him back and say, hey, you know, everything that we recorded, it's gone. Nothing but polite. What a, what 45 a more minutes of him telling the greatest stories from the greatest generation of music. What a gentleman. That's hilarious, by the way. That's it was hilarious. hilarious after he agreed to re-record. It reminds me back in the day when you, when you were writing a Word document and, and you know, you complete, it completely escapes you to, to hit, you know, control save. Control S. And then you look at yourself and go, where'd they all go? Exactly. You once talked to Santa and quote, he said, what do you want for Christmas? And you said, justice, more jobs and social equity. He said, try again. What are you asking for now? Uh, now, you know, it's funny, man. Like now I'm asking uh, health for my friends, my family, health for my friend's family and their friends. You know, as a comedian, you know, the life world as a comedian is a live audience. 
it's people tightly packed into a club, and that is in danger right now. Social distancing is in place. So I think what I want more than anything is vaccine and treatment for this virus so that we can all get back to being together, that we can all share meals together. I mean, the idea that at restaurants, a restaurant is, is like peak living for, for human beings. You know, to sit down at a restaurant, enjoy a meal, have some dessert, to say hi to the chef, to go to a comedy club, to go to a Broadway play, to get on a plane. You know, it's just what I wish more than anything is just a, for a, a treatment, a, a fast treatment for this disease, man, because it's, it's affecting us in so many different ways. It's a tragedy, man. Time's running out, so it's time for the Rocky Nate first answer that comes to your mind. No pressure. How long is a typical hike for you? Well, I live in New York, so I'm mostly going on walks. So typically, anyway, sometimes I go out 30 minutes to hour and a half. If I am out in a place where I can hike, I've grown to like it. You know, many, many moons ago, I climbed Mount Washington, and I was exhausted when I got to the top that I took a van on the way back down. <laughs> I took a nice, comfortable van. About an hour, hour and a half when I'm in the city, I try to go on a walk at least a couple times a week. Otherwise, if I'm out in the wilderness, you know, if I have a guide. I'm also, I'm also a city kid, so if I'm out in the wilderness, you know, I want a guide. I want a, someone there to, to let me know where it's safe to, to eat and, and find shelter. Sunday lunch, what's on the table? Sunday lunch, uh, I'm, a huge, I'm a huge fan of pancakes. I love pancakes. I love, I love oatmeal, so I can, do, I can do breakfast for lunch. And typically, you know, I'm a comedian, so I stay out late. So I'll get up 11 or noon and I'll make some nice oatmeal or some, uh, some pancakes or some, if we go out, I love, I love, uh, you know, X Benedict. Now, where do you write most of your stand up? I write most of my stand up, uh, in my head. It's all in my head, man. Obviously I take notes and stuff, but, uh, if I'm on the subway, if I'm in the shower, I'm talking to a friend. As I'm talking to a friend, I'll be putting together a bit on something, a conversation, a show I watched. 90% of the time it's in my head. You know, my, my dad will say something or my mother will say something that, that triggers a memory and I go, oh, okay. What acting role of yours is your most favorite? You know, the easy answer is Tommy because I'm, it, cause it's my first series regular role. But I think my, my favorite acting role was in 2016 when I shot my pilot for NBC that I wrote uh, with Bill Lawrence and I played the lead of the show and I played, the show was about my life and it was about my, my dad and I in the Bronx running a, running a building. You know, if I'm so blessed, I'll be able to do it again. How about your favorite holiday? Favorite holiday? Huh. Uh, that's a good question, man. Favorite holiday? Well, that's a good one. Yikes. Favorite holiday? Favorite holiday? Uh, Labor Day? As long as you didn't say Arbor Day, we'd be fine. Yeah, Labor Day. Probably, I'm the workers and people that work. You know, those are the people that come see me at clubs. So I would say Labor Day. It's also a long weekend. And, you know, that, that's always good for comedians. Favorite place to get away from it all? I love, uh, it's, it sounds weird, but <laughs> there's parts of Los Angeles, man. I, you know, I, I lived in LA for a few years. And there's parts of Los Angeles where you can get away, like Mosa Beach. I go to Palos Verdes. There's little pockets of Los Angeles where you can really kind of sneak out. I also love San Francisco. I guess I would say California. Now, favorite music that you listen to. Now, I know you were washing your hands the other day to the <laughs> Wu-Tang Clan. <laughs> the Wu-Tang Clan. Lately, it's been, uh, you know, I got to go with, I got to go with my main man, Miles Davis. You know, to this day, you know, kind of blue. 
I just, you know, I just recently watched the, there's a documentary on Netflix about Miles Davis. He has demons like all of us, but to me, kind of blew it. It's just a, it's a beautiful, beautiful piece of work. What's one thing that people don't know about you? In high school, I used to be a magician. Really? I was, uh, I was into, I was in sleight of hand and card tricks. Yeah. <laughs> I was huge into magic. Lance Burton, David Blaine, you know, uh, it was, it was, it's nuts. That's why, that's, which is why one of my favorite clubs in Los Angeles. There's a club in Los Angeles called the Comedy and Magic Club. And on the weekends, they would have nine comics and one magician. I would work there on Fridays and Saturdays, and I would always sneak into the showroom to watch the magician work. I also, I lived not too far. When I was in L.A., I lived not too far from the, uh, the, the Magic Castle. I definitely, definitely paid a visit to that place. It's just it's an amazing. I love magic. I love magic. You know, I, I, I do enjoy it. He was a chemistry nerd in high school, communications director for his dad, the super, <laughs> and loves Miles Davis. You can see him on CBS Thursday nights in Tommy, our friend Vladimir Camano. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for your time, and I hope you stay healthy, uh, you know, safe and healthy. And that, my friends, is Beyond the Mic. Was it recording?